Amen. Well, good morning, church. So glad that you're here as you're having a seat. If you have a Bible, if you would, open up to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 5. We are going to be continuing in our series on the most famous sermon ever preached. It is certainly not one of mine, but it is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And it's the sermon that Jesus preached to begin his public ministry. And so all of his words in the sermon are just packed full of truth. They're hugely important. They have a lot of gravity. And so we looked at the very beginning at the Beatitudes. What does it mean to live a life full of the happiness of God, if you will? And it's just almost otherworldly. And then last week we looked at In light of living in this way, in this kingdom way, uh, Jesus calls us now the salt of the earth and the light of the world, that we are to shine brightly, the image of God, that we're to make an impact in the world that we find ourselves in by being the salt of the earth. We're to be distinct in our makeup as Christians. And so Jesus in this sermon is making it very clear what belonging to the kingdom of God looks like. And this is what the sermon's all about. This is what following Christ is all about, that we now belong to a new kingdom, right? This world is not our kingdom. We belong to his kingdom he's building. It's this otherworldly kingdom, the upside-down kingdom, right? And Jesus says things like, um, blessed are the poor, not the rich. And you're like, what? It's like he values that. He says, blessed are those who use their power not to uh, be served by other people, but take what God has given them and serve others greatly. It's just this otherworldly kind of approach that Jesus is teaching us. But if you were a religious person, if you were a Jewish person listening to this, as Jesus' disciples were, Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount because he's teaching on this mountainside, and there was probably some Pharisees and some other characters kind of surrounding Jesus because there was a lot of fanfare around his life and how he had been called up into ministry, and so his disciples were listening to him. There were Jewish disciples, and there were some Pharisees, and there were some other folks surrounded on the periphery, many scholars believe, listening to the teachings of Jesus, and he's talking about blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those that mourn. And if you were, uh, if you grew up Jewish, you would be just burning with a question as you're listening to Jesus teach this sermon. You would be saying to yourself, it would be like one of those moments where uh, the teacher is teaching, and you just, you have a question, and you're like, she's in the middle of her kind of deal, and you're just Pick me, I got a question, right? It would be one of those moments where you're just like, I got a question, I don't understand something, or I, I, need to make, I need to make a statement or a point. I don't have a question, I just want to insert my opinion because I think you've missed something, right? It's one of these moments that I'm sure the disciples were feeling, and Jesus, in fact, addresses it before they can interrupt him. And so all of the things that Jesus has said up until this point to begin his public ministry, the Beatitudes, salt and light, are shocking in and of themselves. But almost what's more shocking is what he didn't say about who can have an entrance into the kingdom of heaven. That would have been one of the most shocking things of all, right? The thing that he didn't say. And that's the question that these Jewish disciples or these folks listening to this teaching that Jesus would have been teaching them would have been wanting to ask him. And the question that they were just probably burning to ask him is, Jesus, well, what about the law? 
You're saying all of these people get the kingdom of heaven, the poor, the meek, those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, those that mourn over their sin. It's like, yeah, okay, well, do you, have you ever heard, Jesus, ever heard of Moses, right? Ever heard of the law? Ever heard of keeping the law and the righteous requirements of the law? Ever heard of those? You've been teaching poor in spirit, mourn our sins, but what about keeping God's commandments to enter into the kingdom of heaven? They would have been saying, that's what we've been taught our entire lives. Does that not have any place anymore in the kingdom of God? Because so far, Jesus was teaching people they enter God's kingdom by grace. It's this whole upside down way of living, right? It's not the powerful, it's the poor, it's not uh, it's not being served by other people, it's serving others. It's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It's meekness, not exerting yourself over other people. It's a, a kingdom by grace. But now, to these Jewish listeners, well, what about the law? What about that which God has given to us in his word? Their original audience would have heard Jesus' teaching, and it would have sounded crazy to them. What do you mean you can have the kingdom of heaven by doing those things? Well, what about all of this that we've been taught our entire lives that God himself has given to us in his word? Are you doing away with what the law and the prophets has written? Do you just get rid of it and then operate in this new way that you're teaching us? So Jesus, brilliant Jesus, knows this would have been a burning question in their mind, addresses these questions about the law of God in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. So listen to these words of our Lord Jesus. Matthew 5, 17 will begin. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of the commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he switches gears a little bit, talking about the importance of God's law, what it means. And then he's going to switch gears and he's going to talk about the moral law or he's going to recap almost the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm not going to read them all in their entirety, but we're going to get through some of them today. And he, he tips in in verses 21 and 22. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But whoever murders will be liable to judgment. He said, but I say, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Verse 27 and 28, he goes to another one. He says, you heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Talking about the law. But I say everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then he goes on in the weeks 
coming, we're going to hit some more of these. He goes on with oaths. He goes on with all these things, retaliation. You see, for the Jewish believers listening to Jesus at the time, entrance into the kingdom of God without the importance of keeping God's law was a concept entirely foreign to them. It would have made no sense to them. It would be like, what are you talking about? God's given us what it takes to enter into the kingdom of God already. So to them, to the original listener, disobedience to what God had commanded, like external, just do it. God has told us, so we will obey. Thinking you would, thinking you would attain the kingdom of heaven outside of that was just not even on their radar. It was, it was unthinkable. But for us, Christians living in America today, the idea of an entrance into the kingdom of heaven by grace doesn't sound strange to us at all. If you've grown up in church at all, it's like, well, yeah, of course, it's Jesus, right? It's like, that makes, it's, it's by grace alone, faith alone. But what does sound strange is Matthew 5, 17 through 32, you're like, what's all this stuff about every commandment having to be fulfilled? Jesus. What's all this stuff about sounding like you're making it even harder and more strict almost? Like, you've heard it said, don't murder. But now, Jesus, you're saying, well, if I get angry in my heart, I've already committed murder against my brother just by being angry with him. It's like, you're making this even more difficult for us, Jesus. What's the stuff about the adultery? You're saying if I just... If my mind wanders toward a lustful thought about another woman that I've committed adultery with her in my heart? Jesus, what, what are you talking about here? Right? What is, what is all this stuff? What's, what's the statement about our righteousness having to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees in order for us to enter into the kingdom of heaven? The Jewish believers in Jesus' day had such a view of God that to hear of a God that did not require obedience sounded foreign and strange. It would not have computed with them, with what generations and generations uh, had, had taught them. But many times as Christians living in America today, our view of God is such that the idea of God requiring obedience or requiring anything from us almost sounds strange to us. We're like, what? I should just be able to kind of do what I want and then ask for forgiveness later. I thought that's how this whole thing worked, right? Like, this sounds kind of difficult. It even sounds offensive. I don't like the way this sounds. I thought salvation was free. I thought it was by grace alone. So which is it, Jesus? Does God require obedience or doesn't he? Do I have to obey God and keep all of his law and commandments or don't I? See, Jesus is teaching in Matthew 5, 17 through 32, he's teaching about the nature of God's word. He's teaching us something very important here. He's teaching about the nature of God's word, that the nature of God's righteous requirements that he's given to us the requirements of the law of God that God has commanded for us in the Bible, Jesus is teaching that those commandments must be kept. 
well, what happens if I don't? Right? Well, are we all in trouble? What's going on here, Jesus? And so as we look at this, this is important to set up all the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. If we're kind of grasping what Jesus is teaching here, I want to just look at three things today quickly, because really... I've got probably enough material for five weeks of sermons in here, but we've got to get it done in one. So here we go. Um, The first thing I want to look at is why can't God's word be abolished? Why can't, like, why can't Jesus just set up a new way? He's Jesus after all, right? The second thing, if it can't be abolished, how will God's law be fulfilled? How can we do this? If what he just said is true, how can that be plausible And the third, does God require obedience from us or does he offer grace? That's where we're going today. So why can't Jesus just do away with God's commandments? Why can't they be abolished? Like us, we say things that we take back all the time. This is just normative for us in our human experience. If you're like me, you're like, you know, you got to go back on your word all the time. You said something you shouldn't have to your spouse. You're like, oh, Ashley, I'm so sorry. I was, while I said it, I was like, oh, I wish I could reel that back. You're like, we've had those moments, right? You're like, oh, it's just, I, I'm, I take it back. Please forgive me. I take back my words. When you're, you're getting frustrated with your children, maybe you, you're too hard on them, and you have to go back and say, I'm really sorry that I said that to you in that way. I just, I, I didn't mean to say it like that. Will you please? We, we have to take our words back all the time. In fact, we have a word for it. You have to eat your words, right? Everyone ever heard that term? Everyone ever had to eat their words? Oh, well, I can be done now then, I guess. We all got this down. I'm the only one that struggles with this. Okay. We, we've all done that. In fact, it's, it's very apparent when, uh, especially in athletics, when you get the guy that's like, we're going to win the Super Bowl this year. I guarantee it, right? And they don't even make the playoffs. He had to eat his words, right? We, we're used to people taking back their words all the time. But God's word is not like our word, right? God's word is not like our word. We say it all the time. I'll take that back. I'll never do it again. We abolish our words all the time. So why can't God? Verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, when Jesus says the law or the prophets, that's another way of saying the scriptures. That was the scriptures that he's talking about. It's another way of saying that which God has given to us. I have not come to abolish the scriptures, but I've come to fulfill them. Jesus says, I'll tell you why God's law can't be abolished, verse 18. For truly I say to you, this is why. For truly I say to you, Jesus our Lord saying this about God's word, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus says, here's the reason that God's word can't be abolished or can't be taken away or can't be taken back because the nature of God's word is such that Heaven and earth will pass away before God's word passes away. Jesus here is teaching and speaking to the permanence of God's word. The big seminary word for it is the immutability of God's word. The permanence of God's word. It's not going anywhere. It's God's very word. 
It's who God is. It's what he's given to us. And essentially Jesus, he's, you can imagine he's standing on this mountainside and he's saying, essentially, see that mountain over there? It's easier for that mountain to disappear and vanish than it is for the word of God to disappear. That's how permanent God's word is. It's permanent. Jesus, in this section, which is why it's so important before we get to any of the other things, is framing our view of the word of God. He's giving us a correct view of his word. It's easier for the whole earth to pass away than it is for this to go away. Jesus is saying the Bible is not a product of nature. It's greater than that. It's permanent and it's enduring than the most permanent and enduring thing that we have on this earth. God's word is not like our word. God's word is not like our word. We make mistakes, we misspeak, we overreact, and as a result, we have to take our words back, but God's word is not like that. He says, he means what he says, and it cannot be abolished. It can't be taken away. It can't be taken back. Instead, Jesus said, it must be fulfilled. Fulfilled, meaning all the things that God's word promises all the things that God's word says it will accomplish will come to pass because he said so. Verse 18, notice what Jesus says about God's word, about God's law. Not an iota, not a dot will pass away. So what the English translators are trying to get to here is not the smallest little letter, not the smallest little part of a letter will pass away. None of it. Not even the seemingly most minuscule little iota, little part will pass away. Catch this. This is important. This is the view of the Bible that Jesus has. That the scriptures are divinely inspired, not just in its general content, but down to every single letter, even the smallest little bitty part. Not just the general message, like God is loving, and I kind of get that, and I'm, I'm on board with that. Jesus is like, no, every single little piece. But there's just no way we can believe some parts of it, right? Right? I mean, we're in a different time. We're in a different context. There are parts that are antiquated and outdated, and they just seem like they don't fit today. And, man, can't we just explain those away somehow or get rid of them? Some even, at worst, to me, seem hateful when you're reading. Like, what? How could that be? Now, granted, yes, there are many Old Testament laws that we don't keep anymore because Jesus has perfectly fulfilled them. Okay? Take, for example, sacrifice in the temple. Why do we not still continue to do animal sacrifice to atone for sin? Because Jesus was our atoning final and full sacrifice. It was finished. So no longer, so we are actually obeying God's word by not sacrificing animals anymore because Jesus has perfectly fulfilled them. We are not removing and abolishing them. It has been perfectly fulfilled. So now we get to obey the scriptures 
by seeing the completion of the sacrifice of Jesus. So that's a way that by not doing it, we're obeying the scriptures because Jesus was the fulfillment of them. But catch this. This is important for us to get. This is a tough one. No longer keeping a law because Jesus has fulfilled them is a world apart from not keeping it because you disagree with it. Right? No longer keeping God's law, his moral standard, his call to righteousness that he has given to us, is a world of difference between just not obeying it because I don't like the way it makes me feel. Eh, let's leave that one. I'll just abolish that one in my mind. I hear people say all the time as a pastor, you know, I believe in Jesus, but I just don't believe in everything the Bible has to say. Well, my question for those folks, maybe you struggle with this, is what Jesus do you have to believe in outside of the Bible? Like, how did you get your ideas of who Jesus is, what he's like, how he interacts with us, who God is in this world, how he has saved us, how he has rescued us, where he has placed us? Like, you can't accept a Jesus and reject the Bible. It's impossible. That's you worshiping something of your own construct and making. You've just invented what you hoped he would be like, and now you're worshiping that because it's an easier reflection of what you are uh, supposed to, you think you're supposed to do in the world in which you operate today. God has given us this so that we would have an accurate view of who he is. Jesus says, God's law will not be abolished. We can't just remove parts of it that make us feel uncomfortable. It will not be abolished. It will not be taken back. It must be fulfilled. That's the entire purpose. He came to fulfill all the whole of God's law. His entire life was about accomplishing that. So to have a different view of God's word than Jesus is not to disagree with him on just a small nuance of his life, but it's to disagree with the entire purpose of his life. He came to fulfill all that God had called. The entire Bible points to him. He's the apex of all that was written in the law and the prophets. He is the fulfillment of all of it. So to say, oh, I just, I don't want to think about that one, or we'll just remove that one, is to disagree with why he came in the first place. The real Jesus, who you've come to know, all of God's word is pointing to him. Jesus is the one whom the entire Bible is pointing to, and now, now Jesus points back to. All of it's true, he says. And not only that, but all of it will come to pass, every bit of it. It cannot just be wiped away. It cannot be abolished. It has to be upheld. So the next question is, well, then how can it be fulfilled? If every single bit of it needs to be accomplished, how is that going to happen? In the Torah alone, right? The first five books of the Old Testament, there are 613 commandments. All of that? So how can the law of God be fulfilled? Well, I mean, there's so much. If, I mean, we have questions at the very least about this. Like, how does this work? Right? Right? And we think about the Israelites, right? We think about 
uh, those that were listening, because a Jewish, a Jewish uh, person listening to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount would say, well, I'm, God has called me to fulfill all of this. That's why I'm here. I'm to obey all of it. And we as Christians, we kind of now looking back into the Old Testament, we kind of snicker like, oh, those foolish Israelites, they never get it right. They can't believe they thought they could fulfill all of that, right? They kind of get a bad rap. Um, and we just snicker and we're like, oh. But here's the deal. Whenever the Israelites encountered God's law, encountered God's word, he gives them the law, he gives them the commandments, what do they always say? All throughout scripture, they, this was an echo that kept happening over, over and over again. They always says, we will do all that you command, Lord. We will do all that you command, Lord. Now, did they really feel like they could? I don't know, but that was the response. They couldn't fathom saying anything different to the perfectly righteous God. They couldn't imagine getting something from God himself and saying, nah, we'll see if I can get to that. We will do all that you command, Lord. That was the response. But what about when we go like five miles over the speed limit? Is that still technically breaking the law? I mean, we, we're going to have questions. Like Americans were like, well, what about when my wife asked me who ate the last of the Nutella and I blamed the kids? Is that technically lying? <laughs> it was Costco size. There was plenty to go around. I just, it was all the kids. I, don't, I haven't had any. I don't know what you're talking about, right? Is that literally lying, Lord? Is that like that little nuance? It didn't hurt anyone. It's just the kids weren't around. I just didn't want her to think I ate the whole thing, Right? So at best, we would have questions, and at worst, we would just refuse. Oh, I can't do that. That sounds unreasonable. But the Israelites could not imagine giving another answer rather than, we will do all that you command. And oftentimes, our sort of default is, well, you got to prove to me that I really have to do this, otherwise I'm just going to not. And then Jesus says this in verse 20, and it would have been completely shocking to his disciples listening to this. Like this would have been sort of just out of this world. Like, oh, there's no hope. Jesus goes on, he says this. <clears throat> For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees were the professional law keepers of the day. There was a saying that said, if only two people make it to heaven, one will be a scribe and the other will be a Pharisee. Like, that's all they thought about, that's all they did. These were the righteous of the righteous. Scribes were the experts at interpreting scripture. They devoted their lives to studying God's word. And the Pharisees, who we often think, oh, those hypocrites, those Pharisees, right? They were known as the brotherhood. I believe there was only 6,000 of them to in total of all of the Israelites. Like, it was, it was capped. And so this brotherhood would spend, they, they devoted all of their lives, every waking moment, to observing and obeying every detail of God's law. That's what their lives were made up of and comprised of. And so when Jesus looks at his ragtag fishermen, like, in the peripheral people, like, all the folks that were his disciples... Right? Not the scholarly Pharisees, but the fishermen that throw nets and were kind of smelly like the sea. He's like, hey guys, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. That would have been shocking. 
It would be like saying, unless your basketball skills exceed that of Michael Jordan. I had a Michael Jordan cutout poster in my room growing up, and it was like, I mean, he was the great. He still is the greatest. I mean, don't try to argue with me. It's like, no. I was like, I can't do that. Or unless your uh, pitching skills exceed that of Verlander and Cole, you will not. Right? You're like, what? I can't throw a ball 100 miles an hour and hit like a bullseye like 95% of the time. That's impossible. I'll never get there. Or if you're like uh, Ash and I, any This Is Us fans, anyone like that show? Okay, never mind. I mean, I'm right. Like, I know I don't ask a lot of questions. That was a really easy one. Let's try that. Does anyone watch that show, This Is Us? It's, there's millions of people that watch. Three people do. Okay. You should try doing this. It would be like saying, uh, unless your dad's skills exceed that of Jack Pearson. He's handsome, he's whimsical, he's always saying the right thing, he enters burning buildings to rescue everyone, I mean, he just does everything right always, right? He's romantic, he's like, like, oh, forget it, Jack Pearson, I could never measure up to that. So handsome. Right? I mean, how can we do this? They thought they could keep it all themselves, but they can't, so that's, that's the bad news is we have a God that demands perfect obedience to the law in order to enter into the kingdom of God. That's why verse 17 is such good news. It's the gospel. Verse 17 is very good news for you and I. Because I don't know about you, but I'm no Michael Jordan, or I'm no Verlander. I'm certainly no Jack Pearson from NBC. Right? Verse 17 is good news for me. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus came to do. He says, I've not come to just take it all away. We're not just gonna take back God's word. God's word is, is forever and it's permanent. Jesus is saying that would not be good news at all if we could just reverse God's word. Why do you think that that would be good news? How could you ever trust anything he said if we can just take it away and remove it? He would be an untrustworthy God. Who's to say what you should or shouldn't remove? He says, I've not come to remove it or abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to fulfill it. So church, catch this. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come to fulfill God's law for us. Romans 8.3 The Apostle Paul puts it this way. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son. It was impossible for us to fulfill the law because of the weakness of our flesh. And so God has done that which we could not do by sending his own son. Jesus fulfilled the law through his birth, fulfilled the law through his death, fulfilled the law through his resurrection. But he also fulfilled the law for us in another way that we don't often think about. He fulfills the law of God perfectly through the life that he lived for us. His every day. It wasn't just the big acts of obedience, though it was that. It wasn't just that. 
Jesus fulfilled the law of God perfectly for us in the everyday, seemingly mundane acts of obedience that no one saw. Jesus was fulfilling all the righteous requirements of God's law to purchase our salvation. He did that which we couldn't do in the everyday, in the little things. That's why he says, not a dot or iota. He accomplished all of it. See, God did not just send his son to make us sinless. Sinlessness is not the goal. What Jesus wanted to do and what Jesus did by living the life he lived, by dying the death he, li- he died, and by raising again on the third day, was that he granted to us not just sinlessness, but he granted and credited to you and I his righteousness. That which kept the law for us and fulfilled that which we could not do on our own. And that's what produces joy in us. That's what produces worship in us. So our salvation and power is not dependent on our ability to obey, but on his power. And it's now granted to us through faith. It is credited to us now as righteousness, his righteousness. He gives it to us. He gifts it to us at great cost to himself. And so in the, in the 27 verses that will follow this statement, when he starts unpacking the law, he unpacks the level at which he's accomplished all of this for us. Jesus now says and calls us to live now in accordance to this new righteousness that was granted to us, that was credited to us, that he did and he gave to us. He says, now live in accordance to that which you have obtained in me. I fulfilled it for you. So this goes beyond just saying and performing all the right things. It goes beyond just external obedience and observance. Just looking the part and looking good. But it gets down deeper into us, Jesus is teaching us. It gets right down to the heart because Jesus has fulfilled all of these things and gives us this new righteousness that is not just external, but goes pervasively further in than we could ever, ever grasp. He made a dead heart alive to God. And so Jesus looks at what has been taught, all their questions about the law, and he goes deeper. And he says things like this in verse 21. You heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And then he says, but I say to you this, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. It says it goes deeper. Look at your heart. Don't just focus on just the external observance. He goes, goes deeper, deeper than you could ever imagine. Look at the motivation of your heart. Do you have anger towards your brother or your neighbor? Is it so intense? He's, he's saying you've already committed that unrighteous act in your heart, so go and be reconciled to them. Go talk to them. Go make intercession and make amends because you are now a follower of Christ. I've accomplished everything for you, so now you can look at your heart and go be reconciled to your brother. Verse 27, you heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus takes it a step further, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says, I fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law for you. It's not just fulfilling external rules, but it goes deeper into your heart. And God's word is forever. It is right and it is true. 
And because of that, Jesus says, now the righteous requirements of God's law are now drilled down into your heart. So don't fall into temptation, men. Walk upright. Walk with integrity. Respect women. Don't objectify them. Don't click on those links. It's in your heart now. Jesus has rescued you. It's not just gritting your teeth, but he has now granted to you all of his righteousness. And we have now the power to fight sin that we never had before. And it's in us through Jesus our Lord. Verse 31, it's, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let, her give him, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife except on grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus is teaching the sacred, meaningful depth of marriage. He's like, this is a spiritual covenant between man and woman. It goes deeper than you could ever fathom. It's going, it goes deeper than you could ever imagine. And when it's not going well, he's saying, at the, at the time it was just like, oh, it's not going well, we'll just go issue a certificate of receipt and just be done with it. Walk away. Jesus said, don't do that. Don't throw in the towel. This, this union between a man and a woman here is deeper than you could ever imagine. Jesus gets to the heart's. He's saying, I've come to fulfill the law. I'm fulfilling what the prophets said about me in Jeremiah 31, 33. I will put the law within them. The prophets said, I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Jesus is pleading with us as he continues on in the Sermon on the Mount to remember that the Christian life is not just lip service. It goes deep deeper into you. And he's also saying, so in light of that, our call to obedience is that much higher. It's not just, oh, it's not a get out of jail free card. I can just now live with just a sinful license and one day he'll just sweep it all under the rug. He's saying, no, you've been saved and caught up into something far greater. Far greater with gravity. So does God require obedience or does he offer and extend to us grace? The answer to that is yes, to both. And that's good news for me. The law is now elevated. That which he has called us to is elevated. We as believers have been granted the very righteousness of Christ and so we're called to live in light of that which he has granted and credited to us. But when we fall, when we fail, like I have, grace abounds. So we don't obey this to gain God's favor like the Pharisees believed. We seek to live and obey and shine the very light of the righteousness of Christ because he already has loved and saved and rescued. That's the fuel by which we're able to do this. And it's when we get it backwards that we get into trouble. So Jesus has written this now on our hearts. And Jesus took people like me, a lawbreaker, an adulterer, a murderer in my heart, all these things that I have fallen into and failed in, and he gave me his righteousness. 
He gave me the righteousness of the perfect law keeper. And he gave me his seat of one that is perfectly loved and a perfectly treasured child of God by his blood. That's who we are when we're found in Christ. And when we understand that and grasp that, that gives us the fuel to be the light and the salt of the earth to reflect the righteous requirements of God's people in this world that they might take a look and notice God is doing something amongst those people. Let's pray together, church. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is forever, that it is permanent. We thank you that Jesus fulfilled all of the righteous requirements of the law, Lord, where we have failed them. And Lord, that when we are found in Christ, that he has now credited to us and granted to us his righteousness. And so God, I just pray that uh, we, would, we would be a people that would long to obey and walk and step and in light and in line with your word. That our lives would reflect your nature and your character. But Lord, we thank you for Jesus that when we stumble and fall that you're a God that extends the hand of grace because of Jesus we are now children. And so, God, I pray for those in this room that um, maybe got it backwards and they, they tend to fall into legalism. They just try to keep all the rules and do them themselves. God, I pray you'd soften their hearts this morning and help them um, cling to Jesus, knowing that he is the only one that kept them perfectly, that we have no righteousness of our own outside of him. Soften hearts. Let your grace abound. And God, I pray for those in this room um, we haven't kept them all. We, we, we feel like we're right in the midst of stumbling and falling and we don't know how to keep the righteous requirements and we've tried on our own a million times. I also pray for them that they would lean in and cling to Jesus, the one that offers grace, the one whose blood was shed to cover our iniquities the one who fulfilled that which we could never have fulfilled on our own and because of that can look at someone like me, a lawbreaker, and call me a son of God. Someone that could look at you and call you a son or daughter of the Most High and through that fuel, God, would you give us power to overcome that which has us enslaved in sin. We need your help. We cannot do it alone. We love you. Jesus, move. In Christ's name we pray. Let's stand and